Technology isn't an end in itself, it's a means to an end. Technology isn't the solution, people are the solution. We still need civil society to be strong and powerful. Technology is a really useful tool to enable that, for sure, but it is not an end in itself. Welcome to UNSW Alumni Spotlight, where we talk with our postgraduate alumni about their professional and personal stories. We'll hear what they've achieved in their professional life and how postgraduate study helped shape their career path. I'm Sarah McDonald. Hello, I'm Sarah McDonald, and with me is Reese Proudfoot. Now, Reese is an innovation strategist with WWF Australia, and he's at the centre of using new technology to enact political, social, and environmental change. And Reese has a master's in international social development at UNSW. Welcome. Thanks, Sarah. Now, you were born in Australia, but you spent your childhood in the UK in a rather rarefied atmosphere wearing a black robe and a white ruffle. What was your early schooling like? Yeah, well, when you put it like that, it does sound pretty unorthodox. Um, it was it was normal for me, but uh, looking back, um, it was also a pretty incredible time. I was a chorister at St Paul's Cathedral in London, um, which involved, uh, first of all, boarding um, from a very early age, from the age of, of eight, um, three rehearsals a day, an hour before school, an hour after school, and then Evensong uh, seven days a week. And in fact, three on Saturday and three on Sunday. It was it was a very intense regime, but something at that age that you uh, don't really mind about being a kid. Um, it's just part of the fun. It sounds like a gentle, sweet brutality, though, for an eight-year-old to go to boarding school. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 was, a, it was a choice that my parents gave me. Um, I remember feeling incredibly excited about the prospect of getting to have sleepovers every night um, with my with my mates um, was probably the thing that I I, I took into consideration um, at the time. Looking back, it was it was hard work. You're expected to perform at a professional level at a very young age, um, but the experience and the level of discipline that I attained from that was something that I've carried through uh, throughout my life. And you studied music at university in England as well. I did, yeah. I, I carried on studying music through school and through university, eventually majoring in, in voice um, in one of the coldest cities in, in England, a place called Lancaster up in the north, northwest, and uh, got through university and then took a decision to have a look at what else existed uh, in life apart from music. When you're performing music at that level, um, you have a choice. Um, you can continue to rehearse eight hours a day um, because if you don't, there's someone else that will. Or you can not rehearse eight hours a day and I decided to to step away and to see what else was out there um, and, and have a go at some other things. Right. And did that involve coming back to Australia or travelling the world first? I took a decision to come back to Australia. I'd been in the UK for, for 14 years by then. I was very British um, and came back and, and inhabited the role of a British backpacker um, and decided to travel up and down the East Coast and, and do everything that you do as a backpacker um, in the, the early 2000s and spent a few years um, you know, looking around what was a relatively new country for me again and working in bars and, and doing everything else that you do as a, as, a, a, as a bloke in the early 20s. Right. When did you start to feel Aussie again or do you not still? 
Uh, that that depends on the quality of the cricket team, I have to say. Like <laughs> recently with the way the cricket team's been performing, I've started to feel a bit less Aussie Oh, you're again. Indian. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it depends on how much uh, sandpaper is used in the cricket. But um, no, I, I, I think over time it's probably when the accent goes. And, um, and, and honestly, I think the litmus test is when you start supporting the, the Australian sports teams again and sports people. Um, that's when, when I certainly started to feel Aussie again. Right. You did travel uh, in as a backpacker overseas. So how did uh, your time in Nepal change the direction of what you do and end up leading to you returning to Australia to do a master's degree in international development? I was 26, 27 at the time. I'd been working in the media uh, actually for News Limited for a few years um, and had worked my way up into a pretty, pretty, pretty comfy job um, as a campaign manager and thought I wanted to try and, um, well, I wanted to actually go and discover myself as you do um, as, a, as a bloke in your mid-20s and, and thought I need to go somewhere where I can do that. Um, Nepal is the perfect place to go and do something like that. Um, so I headed over on what would be called now a volunteerism program um, and it involved, um, I was there for seven weeks and I was uh, volunteering in a, a Buddhist monastery teaching trainee monks um, how to speak English and incidentally they were around about the same age that I was when I was at St Paul's um, and they were living away from home they were there in this monastery on their own there are lots of obviously similarities between my life and their life. Different kind um, of singing though probably. Different singing uh, I didn't have to shave my head and I didn't have to fast every second day um, when I was at St Paul's um, so I think they win the prize for being more hardcore um, than I was um, at their age but I, I, I mean it was a fantastic experience um, I thoroughly enjoyed it I you know, did manage to do some decent thinking and um, had a, had a great time. But I think the you know the the moment for me where I sort of started to wake up or have this paradigm shift was as I was leaving the monastery after an amazing few weeks, um, and I turned around, walking down the path through these woods away from the monastery, and I turned around and I saw these boys who I'd bonded with in floods of tears, and um, you know, and they were tears because they were sad because I was going and we'd, we'd bonded and. And I thought to myself, you know, what have I actually achieved here, you know, beyond basically making them feel sad because they've had someone in their life and that person is now going. And it made me really think about, um, you know, the, the, how to create impact um, on a sustainable long-term scale um, and whether I had just done that or whether I had been the, the actual beneficiary of that transaction. And so I thought there's got to be a way where I can actually add value um, in a more meaningful way and a more authentic way um, than I guess what we would now call something that's bordering on this kind of poverty porn of, of selling the opportunity for rich, young Western people to go and spend some time abroad and, and, and feel good about themselves. Yeah, so beyond your personal self-discovery, you kind of thought what's more important is helping other people on a on a scale that doesn't involve that poverty porn, that kind of guilt that we often feel. You do, I mean, you do hear stories about Westerners going to places and being asked to build a wall and then it's knocked down and then yeah. another lot come in and you just, all yeah. you're achieving is your own feeling a bit better about yourself. Yeah, and these villages end up with 30 toilets that they don't need. Right. So that, that, that led to the Masters in International Social Development. What did you want to achieve in that? What, what was your aim in doing that Masters? M- my first aim was actually to understand try and find out what I didn't know because um, I knew I was starting from a, a, a standing start. I knew very, very little um, about the way that the world worked um, and I needed to understand where my gaps were. Uh, and so the masters really helped me in those first couple of years to, first of all, get a basic level of understanding about how um, 
the world works, um, how power moves, um, and how uh, inequality manifests itself. And you know, really helped to open my eyes up um, to, to some of these systemic problems. It wasn't enough for me to feel confident about working in the industry. I um, remember being in the course, and this is you know ten years ago now. But you know, and and being asked to do a, a to do a project on a case study that I was involved in. Um, you know, a lot of the other students were um, involved in the international development sector, and of course, I was working for a for a, um, a media company selling. You're working ads. for Rupert Murdoch. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so um, it was a little bit hard for me to write it to do a case study, and I ended up doing one on on some uh, you know, example I found interesting anyway. But um, I, I knew that I needed to actually have some hands-on experience to fully understand um, how I could be useful um, and where I could apply myself to be useful. Um, so that led me to, to think about uh, taking some time off from the masters and looking for an opportunity to actually work in the sector. And I found a, a fantastic program um, that the Australian government was running at the time called the Australian Youth Ambassadors for Development, um, which involved sending young skilled Aussies abroad for a year um, to volunteer with a placement organisation. The idea is that you have a few years of work under your belt and that you use the skills from your, your, your um, current sector to, um, to help a, a partner organisation. For me, um, the job that I found was working for the uh, local newspaper in the Kingdom of Tonga, um, which was going through quite a fascinating democratisation process at the time. It had been, of course, very famous um, absolute monarchy. Um, you know, they're very, very proud of the royal family in Tonga. And the late, the late king um, had uh, enacted this democratisation process. And part of that was making sure that the, the, the media that was previously owned by the state or, or by the king um, was actually handed over to, to the people. And there was some degree of um, independence in the media. And so my job was to go over and help to set up the local English language newspaper and make sure it could stand on its own two feet. Um, so that they could have some form of strong media in Tonga. Right. But you were kind of left to do that on your own. So you did eventually hand that over to the locals, which is what it should have been about after a few months. You then ended up working in tourism. What did that teach you about the reality and the complexities of international development? That, that time was was really important for me to understand the transactional nature of international development sometimes where you can have you know very well paid consultants coming into a you know con- a developing country and and delivering a very pretty looking um, report on how that country or a sector in that country should um, improve itself um, with no real long-term approach to how it's going to be implemented and in fact very little local consultation as well and you know the development sector is an industry there's a lot of money sloshing around in it and it's obviously a lot better now than it used to be but you know that helped to open my eyes about um, some of the challenges of coming in with a lot of answers into a developing country and not necessarily working with the local community and helping to co-create solutions. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm definitely not saying I was equipped to do that at that age, uh, that stage in my career, but it definitely helped me to understand that that was, that was a need and that was something that I needed to be able to understand in order to provide some value. Right. And did that dovetail brilliantly when you came back to complete your master's? I'm wondering how much was that time in Tonga uh, helping with your actual master's degree and how much was that encouraged by UNSW, that practical experience, the lived experience of what you were learning about? Uh, UNSW were massively supportive of me doing it, I think for obvious reasons, that it was directly associated with my degree. There was a strong rationale for me spending some time abroad and 
the way that I was able to structure my degree and the flexibility I had with UNSW meant that once I'd been away and I'd spent that time in Tonga and I understand where my understood where my gaps were, I was able to come back and fill those gaps with modules um, as part of the degree. So I, for example, knew that I really needed to understand how the world worked and why there were big environmental and um, social problems in the world. And so I studied political eco- uh, global political economy. I needed to understand how the levers that you could pull to enact change. And so I studied environmental policy and I needed to understand how I could actually bring about change on the ground in a useful way. And so I studied program management, you know, which were very, very practical tools for me. And so being able to structure my degree the way that I did was was absolutely, um, absolutely crucial. You also learned a lot in Tonga about power in terms of the environment, didn't you? Because of the uh, work going on on climate change there. And Tonga is very much at the centre of this being very low lying Pacific Island that's very much at risk of, of global climate change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Pacific Islands are absolutely at the forefront um, of climate change impacts and, of course, have very little to do with actually creating um, climate change. Um, When I was in Tonga, it was 2009, um, there were two really important things happening. Um, First of all, the Tongan people and the Tongan government had taken it upon themselves to develop what was called the Tonga Energy Roadmap, which was a 10-year plan to transition the entire Tongan economy to renewable energy. So they were just getting on with what they needed to do. The other thing which was beyond their control was that there was a very famous meeting that happened in Copenhagen um, in um, 2019 called called the, the COP, uh, Conference of Parties. It was COP17. It's notorious because it's the one that you know, spectacularly failed and resulted in um, our efforts to, to halt climate change stagnating um, and a lot of people coming away feeling very demoralised, something that we're still you know trying to build up the momentum from. Uh, the the moment for me um, that really kind of brought it home was that um, the the... the experience of the Tongan negotiator who was sent to Copenhagen. There was one negotiator, his name was Lord Ma'afu. He was very generous in, in sort of sharing um, his experience. Uh, he, was, he had one helper that was actually happened to be another, Tongi, uh, another Australian volunteer. And you know, his experience in Copenhagen was going up against 100 American negotiators with teams of hundreds of lawyers um, and just being absolutely whitewashed. And there was no hope. There was no hope for these disempowered countries to actually come away with anything helpful. And, you know, Australia was absolutely not blameless in that either. And so I felt a deep sense of um, unfairness at just how um, unbalanced our global power systems are um, and really felt that I needed to be involved in something that helped to even up power systems from, you know, well, towards the people that actually um, should have the power um, and away from perhaps the institutions that were causing the problems. We live in a time of really massive technological and rapid technological change in this world. What is Panda Labs that you're working on now and how does this harness that technological transformation for good? Uh, Yeah, a couple of years ago, I founded a program called Panda Labs, which I guess you could describe it as um, an innovation for positive social impact accelerator. So what we do is look for systemic change, harnessing the power of technology. Um, And that primarily for us at the moment is across climate change and across sustainable food. There is no doubt that we live in a time where, you know, the advances in technology are becoming faster. The capabilities of these emerging technologies are becoming much more powerful. And we have an opportunity, if harnessed correctly, to channel these emerging technologies for positive social and environmental impact. We just have to look at what happened with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica to see what happens if 
these technologies aren't used for positive social impacts. And so we have definitely a sort of a seesaw thing happening here. So the aim of Panda Labs is to, uh, I guess, harness these emerging technologies, bring the right kind of people and brains together and then say, you know, looking at these global problems and let's not play around the edges here. Like we need to absolutely be thinking about a moonshot, uh, about how we can enact change at global scale in the shortest amount of time. You know, what do we need to be building and with whom do we need to build it in order to bring about this kind of systemic change? Um, and so we've been looking at some of the most, um, I think, exciting emerging technologies for us anyway, which is blockchain. Most people would know from as the technology that underpins um, Bitcoin and Ethereum and cryptocurrencies, although blockchain for the in the sustainable food space, at least, offers um, some very interesting and potentially transformative opportunities um, related to supply chain. Can you explain that? I don't understand. How would blockchain help us make food more sustainable? Blockchain, when you break it down, is just a a decentralized database. It's a decentralized ledger. Um, However, without getting too much into technology, what it enables is a high degree of trust um, that the data stored in that database can't be tampered with. Now, what that means when you have a scenario like complex global supply chains where there's lots of actors involved from, you know, the producers to the transporters to logistics to um, major brands to consumers, if you can guarantee more traceability and transparency in these global supply chains, um, there's less chance of bad things happening. The reason why we are so interested in this is that at a a macro level, um, global food production is responsible for 70% of global biodiversity loss. I mean, that's a staggering figure. Um, that's the way that we produce our food, we grow it, reproduce it, we transport it, et cetera, so on and so forth. If we can increase the levels of transparency in global supply chains so that we shine a light on good behaviors, so companies that are producing food in the right way and reward them for their behaviors and perhaps shine a light on the actors which aren't doing so many good things in supply chains that we can actually help to change the behavior of some of these big global players. Now, to give you an example, we uh, launched, last week actually launched a, a platform called OpenSC, which stands for Open Supply Chain. We successfully um, have used OpenSC to trace Patagonian toothfish from uh, Glacier 51, which is way out in the ocean, um, to Matt Moran's restaurant Aria um, in Sydney. Um, and we're able to show uh, people who were sitting down at a table with their smartphones um, exactly where that fish came from and how it was caught um, and how it got to them. Well, they point their smartphone at the fish they're about to eat and they'll know where it came from and how sustainably it was caught and who caught it and all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, in a nutshell, yeah. Um, so How? Um, because the – so the OpenSC does four, four key things. First of all, um, it enables you to capture data at source. So when the fish is coming out of the water, it's tagged with what's called a radio frequency identification tag, um, and that tag stays with the fish. Um, it never leaves the fish, uh, and that sort of captures all that data about how the fish was caught, where it was caught, who caught it, um, et cetera. So um, you'd know if it was caught in a national park and you wouldn't eat it. Yeah, and you'd know if it was caught using worker exploitation or slave labour, or you probably wouldn't because there wouldn't there would be less of that behaviour. Um, so you can reward the good guys. So the second part is that that data is then transferred into a QR code, which when the, the fish is shrink-wrapped and transported, the QR code follows the fish, of course, all the way as well. The... Third part is that it's we use machine learning to verify the sustainability credentials of that fish, and so um, you know you can prove that that fish was caught in a sustainable way. And and the fourth part is that um, the data is then 
exposed to consumers in a in an engaging way using you know engaging digital digital platforms and all of this the, the data is sort of is is captured and stored um, in the blockchain so it's you can't be ta- tampered with which gives businesses and consumers a high degree of trust that their food came from where they um, it was said that it to come from now if you remember back to the problems that we had with uh, needles in strawberries um, where there had to be enormous product recalls because you you know, no one knew exactly when the needles went in the strawberries yeah, which and where it, it came from. Where, yeah. yeah, the same thing with now baby, baby milk in China. Um, yeah, you'd like scan that strawberry and go, that came from that place and it happened at this point. You'd know exactly where it came from. Um, and you can highlight the moment where it hadn't been tampered with to perhaps it had been tampered with. Okay, so this is also about power back to the consumer, isn't it? Because at the moment we feel so overwhelmed with but at the same time don't get enough information. This is giving us the power back to choose sources of food and environmentally sustainable methods of, a, of being able to eat. So one of the other major trends which we're seeing at the moment is the role of business as solution creator for big social environmental you know, issues. And this isn't just WWF and Panda Lab saying you should do this. This is this is being called for um, by business, and so this is filling a need that is being created within within the corporate sector. But but I guess the other thing to note is this is about the responsible use of data um, and who has the who has access to data and sh- sh- who should have access to data. Now you know part of the problems occur when one very powerful company controls all of the data. You know you could argue that you know in, in a world with nine billion or soon to be nine billion consumers or 9 billion people needing to eat food, that you should open up that data as much as possible so that the way that food is produced and who produces it is available to to everyone. And how can this be used? Similar technological developments and, and blockchain with things like your other great passion, which is climate change. Can you give us an example there? There's there's lots of really exciting thing, things happening in the climate change space. I guess, you know, related to, to blockchain, um, you know, and something which is which Aussies can be very proud of. There, there is um, a company called Powerledger operating out of Western Australia, which is uh, using blockchain to enable peer-to-peer um, trading of energy. So what this means is, you know, and there's a lot of talk at the moment about you know the companies that control poles and wires and energy utilities having too much power. What this means is that um, households will effectively be able to trade energy with each other um, and become self-sufficient and self-sustainable because the the blockchain enables that trust between two individuals, in this case two houses, to be able to effectively trade energy with each other. That's a very simple way of kind of describing what they're, what they're looking at, but it's, it's potentially transformative and very exciting. Well, this is, as you said, it's sort of taking back power from big structures, major corporations. There is real concern at the moment that a lot of the uh, democratic systems and power bases we have had are breaking down. So... What gives you optimism that we'll be using this sort of technology to create solutions rather than uh, flip it to a point where it means that certain organisations, you mentioned Cambridge Analytica and, and those sort of power structures, giant corporations take over from democracies? That's a genuine concern. Um, I don't think we've worked out the answer to that at the moment, but there's lots of people doing some very good thinking. And to agree, to a degree, this is... You know, this concern is is because governments sometimes can't keep up with the rate of change, um, the rate of development of new technologies. What I will say, though, is that technology isn't an end in itself. 
it's a means to an end. Um, technology isn't the solution. People are the solution. And people can use and channel technology for the right things. Um, we still need decision makers to be making the right decisions. We still need civil society to be strong and powerful and advocating for the rights of people and nature. Technology is a really useful tool to enable that for sure, but it is not an end in itself. The other thing it means is technology, it takes away all boundaries. We live in this internationally connected world now. So just talk to us a little bit about how these international connections that you've made doing your master's, visiting Tonga, coming from the UK, and now in this borderless world, I suppose, have meant that for you it's a, it's a future that is all about these international connections. Panda Labs uh, was founded here in Australia, but it's now scaled to seven countries around the world, um, including China. The reason why we took the decision to scale Panda Labs so quickly was that we sh- we can and should be trying to leverage economies of scale where pos- wherever possible. Uh, what that means is commercialising these solutions once they've been proven um, to work as quickly as possible and across boundaries and borders. We're lucky that here in Australia we um, are seen internationally as a crucial launch pad into the lucrative um, Asian market. And what that means is that when we develop solutions here in Australia, like OpenSC, that can not only help to transform supply chains and make them more sustainable, but actually help businesses become more, more, more effective and efficient. These solutions can, can scale into other countries and other markets very quickly. And so the way that Panda Labs uh, operates globally um, across many, many countries um, in a very lean manner, we don't build big things, um, build, build structures, we operate very lean and very fast, um, means that we can you know, test and validate these solutions quickly and then scale them quickly as well. And that is absolutely crucial. And so a lot of, a lot of my work involves um, working with um, countries, uh, offices in, in lots of countries around the world, like China and Kenya and Denmark and Romania, and, and helping to look for ways that we can um, use these solutions in these different countries um, for the problems that we all share. Well, it has to involve the whole world, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And China. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's there's a billion consumers in China. Whatever we do here in Australia is scratching the surface unless we think about scale from the outset. That's not to say that we don't um, need to play the role of an active citizen in the world in Australia. We absolutely do. We should be leading by example, um, especially when it comes to climate change um, and decoupling our economy from carbon. But, you know, we need to be looking for ways that we can influence uh, other countries around the world uh, as well. Do you still sing while you're doing all of this? I do. I do still sing. Um, I I love singing and um, I've never really stopped singing. Um, I just sing for fun now um, rather than um, professionally. And um, I sing for a a gospel choir here in Sydney called the Cafe of the Gate of Salvation, which is a lot of fun. Um, It was the first time in my life having sung professionally uh, and with classical music uh, predominantly um, that... Um, I was able to do something called the gospel shuffle, um, which is moving when you sing, and I'd never done that before. Um, look it up um, if you want to see what it looks like, um, and clicking and clapping and everything else that sort of makes singing fun um, as opposed to standing still reading music. So I, I love it. Um, it's a big change to what I grew up doing, but it's sort of, for me, it's it's really what makes singing so enjoyable. You've cast off the ruffle for the... For the shuffle. Uh, well, we don't. We don't. That's a brilliant way of saying it. Yeah, yeah. We don't. We don't wear cassocks and surplices, um, but we do. We, you know, occasionally indulge in um, you know fabulous uh, multicoloured shirts. Right, and it is an international language as well. Singing, isn't it? Wherever you go, yeah. whatever you're connecting with, whoever all over the world, it's something we all share. 
It is, it is, and and it provides joy, and and um, you know, it, it's hard not to uh, feel uplifted um, either when you are singing or when you are watching people sing. Reese, so great to meet you. Thank you so much for telling us about the work you do. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.